Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. It's good to be together again and get to worship our God. I hope that you have been encouraged so far, and I trust that God will help us now as he ministers to us through his word. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and this morning we will be looking at the fall of mankind in the first eight verses of chapter 3. Let's begin our time together by reading our passage. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, And he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are going to begin to look at this singular event on which the history of all mankind turned. We are going to begin looking at this week what we will finish next week as we look at mankind going from a state of innocence to a state of sin and misery, all because they broke the commandment and the covenant of their God in the garden. This morning, we're going to be focusing our attention on the buildup to the fall. We are going to look at how this all started, and so we're just going to have one point this morning, the conversation, where we are going to focus our attention on the first five verses and the interaction between the serpent and the woman. Before we begin, let us go to the Lord in prayer together, asking for his help. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, we have gathered together as your people to glorify your name, and we ask that you would hallow it among us. Father, help us this morning as we 
look to your word to teach us, to instruct us, help us, Father, to learn this morning and to have this inform how we look at ourselves, how we look at one another, how we look at the world, how we consider our hope, our desperate need to not lean on our own understanding, but to trust in your word in all ways and at all times, to strive in the ways that you have called us to strive and for those things which you have not given us authority over or to do, to hope and to trust, to wait on you to act. Father, we ask that you would not only be with our time together, but we plead with you to also be with our sister churches and whatever passage of scripture they are in this morning, that you would use your word among them to glorify yourself, to sanctify your people, and to open the ears and grant repentance and faith to the lost among them, just as we desire that you would do among us. Father, we lift up Arbor Church, our sister church in the Reformed Baptist Network in Dayton, Ohio. We also lift up our brothers and our sisters at Fair Plains Baptist Church down in North Wilkesboro. Father, we lift them up to you, asking that you would move among them, that you would work among them, that you would so do that in their lives that you would be pleased with how they serve you in their communities. Father, we also lift up our persecuted brethren throughout the world this morning, especially in Saudi Arabia. Father, we ask that you would help them to hold fast their confession of faith and their hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, that you would grant them favor in the eyes of their family members, in the eyes of their community, that you would give your gospel a hearing and that you would bring life to that which is now dead. That you would cause those who are now enemies to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, as we turn our attention back to the Garden of Eden and this passage that you have before us this morning. Help our minds to be relieved of distractions. Help us to focus. We thank you as your people that you have given us ears to hear. You have given us hearts that desire to obey. Father, we ask now that you would help us in sowing to the Spirit and not to the flesh, to make no provision for the flesh. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Puritan Samuel Rutherford once said, Duties are ours. Events are God's. When our faith goes to meddle with events and to meddle with God's providence, 
and beginneth to say, How wilt thou do this or that, God? We lose ground. We have nothing to do there. It is our part to let the Almighty exercise his own office and steer his own helm. There is nothing left for us but to see how we may be approved by him. This morning, as we look at the buildup to the fall of mankind here in the Garden of Eden, we are going to see a failure of duty. In our passage this morning, there are many duties that the man and his wife, we will see them abandon because as they look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden and as they entertain the words of the serpent, they begin, as Samuel Rutherford said, to meddle with events. They meddle with events in the garden the way Abraham and Sarah will later meddle with God's promise by bringing Hagar into the picture. Adam and Eve here in the garden meddling with what belongs to God. They abandon their duty in order to become the commanders of their own destinies. Beloved, as we go through our passage this morning, let us keep in the forefront of our minds that here in the garden, Satan began to wage war against God and against his image bearers. Let us learn as we look at our passage this morning, his slithering, deceptive tactics. Let us remember our responsibilities, our duties in this life that God has put before us and let us grow in our understanding and in our faith in the fact that because the outcome of events belong to God, because our destinies belong to our loving Heavenly Father, when we seek to manipulate and question his providence in our lives, we lose ground. Let's begin looking at the serpent's tactics that he uses in his conversation with Eve. And as we are going through this conversation, do not forget, beloved, that Adam is right here. Adam is not off in the distance somewhere doing some other work, but verse 6 makes it very clear that Adam was right here the entire time during Eve's conversation with the serpent. Look back at verse 1 with me. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the first thing that we need to recognize here in verse 1 is that the serpent was made by the Lord God. He is a beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent did not and does not exist independently of God. The serpent did not slither into the garden with his own authority or with his own power. He is not another God in competition with Yahweh for the souls of men. The serpent is like a dog on a leash. He is under God's sovereign decree. In other words, like we can see in the book of Job, here in Genesis 3 in the garden, the serpent had to get permission to come into the garden to tempt the man and his wife. 
we need to recognize this and bring it to the forefront of our minds here at the beginning of our passage this morning so that we don't come away from Genesis 3 thinking to ourselves that everything was going just fine, everything was going just the way God intended, and then Adam and Eve messed it all up. And after they messed it up, God had to regroup, a little panic set in, and he had to come up with a plan B in order to accomplish what he was hoping to accomplish in the beginning. My beloved, what is happening here in the garden is part of God's eternal decree. Pastor Quinn was teaching us a few weeks ago in Sunday school what Satan means for evil here in the garden God has purposed for good as he glorifies himself. Now if that thought is a head scratcher for you and you can't quite grab a hold of it, please talk with Pastor Quinn or Pastor Scott or myself and we'd be happy to help you understand it. Now, with that being said, we can see here as we're looking at verse 1 that the serpent that comes into the garden is described here as being crafty. The serpent is cunning. He is clever. We know that he is trying to get Adam and Eve to disobey God. He is trying to get Adam and Eve to break this covenant that God has made with them. We also need to remember that until we get to verse 6 of our passage today, that there is no sin in Adam. There is no sin in Eve at this point in our passage. And as king and queen of the earth, there is no sin in their domain, which means that this serpent had been possessed by someone who was evil. It means that this serpent came from outside the earthly creation. We learn later on in Scripture that it was Satan who had possessed the serpent. We can see it most clearly in Revelation 12, 9, where God says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, as we read verse 1 and begin to think about this conversation between the serpent and Eve, we must also remember that God has given Adam and Eve great liberty here in the garden. He said to them back in chapter 2, verse 16, that they could eat freely, freely of the trees in the garden. But the crafty serpent turns that around and in one cunning move seeks to make God sound stingy here in verse 1. When he says, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? You can see in this question of Satan that he has his eye on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His intention is to get them to eat from that tree and his first strategic move here is to exaggerate. Satan's first move is to take the specific command of God concerning one tree and make it sound like that God is holding out. Like he hasn't given Adam and Eve free access to an abundance of resources in the garden. Satan is trying to make God seem stingy in their eyes. And as we're processing this, we can see Satan's craftiness and the fact that as he is doing this, You'll notice the absence in his words of God's covenant name Yahweh in verse 1. Satan just uses God's generic name 
And this subtle move that he is making here, he is seeking to draw Adam and Eve's attention away from the fact that there is a tree in the garden with a covenant command attached to it with great consequences if this command is disobeyed. Satan is drawing attention away from that as he is seeking to impugn God's character here. As we look at verse 2 now, we can see that Eve also, as she replies to the serpent, she also does not use God's covenant name. Look at verse 2 with me. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. You can see here that while Eve corrects the serpent and says that they can eat from the trees of the garden, she also copies Satan's omission of God's covenant name here. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Eve is sinning here. She is not sinning in what she is doing, but the serpent is. And I point it out just to show how subtle a move this is by the serpent and how these small but strategic moves of the crafty serpent later on get turned into big moves as we go through the passage. But at this point in our passage, despite the crafty moves of the serpent, things are actually going pretty well. God has commanded the man concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He has obviously communicated that command to his wife, who was not around when God first gave it to him. And Eve is right in line with the created order and is helping her husband by declaring this truth to the serpent that is speaking to her. At this point, they are keeping guard over the garden. They are exercising dominion as they were commissioned to do. Now, one brief application that I want to make here to us as a church is to take note of the fact that at this point, things are going well because they are operating according to the created order. Take note of the fact, beloved, that things go well when we operate according to the order that God has established. Now, here in the garden, that's what's happening here at this point. And we should learn from this. Obviously, there are many applications that we can make from this. We could look at the world around us and see how mankind has rejected the order that God instituted when we consider issues of sexuality or gender or government or any other number of things, it's easy to look outside at the world, outside of people that aren't in here, and make applications to them. And those applications do get made often, and it's good that they do, but it's a little more difficult to turn our gaze inward here in our church but we need to. So the application that I want to make to us is to acknowledge that our King Jesus has also established an order for us. In the church, Jesus Christ, in the covenant of grace, in the covenant community, here at the gathering church, our King has established an order, and he is ruling over us according to 
that order that he has established. And we should learn from Adam and Eve that things go well when we operate inside that order. And we should learn from the world the chaos that ensues when we go outside of that order. Brothers and sisters, fellow members of the gathering church, we have all covenanted together here as a local church with members, with deacons, with pastors, and we have all agreed that our king in his kindness in our life has in his providence gifted and raised up for us three pastors with the unique responsibility of pouring themselves out in order to watch over our souls. Now, we don't live in a day and an age where that's a common way of looking at the order that Christ has established in his church, but it is what Jesus has taught us in the Bible in places like Acts 20, where Paul says to the pastors of the church in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And in Hebrews 13, where we are instructed to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, beloved, it is our king who has done this. He has established this order. And so when you have things that are bothering your soul, you should be instructed by the fact that our king, in his kindness, has made Pastor Scott, Pastor Quinn, and myself responsible to watch over your soul during this season of your life. Beloved, that fact should instruct you that when you are struggling with things in your own life, or when you are struggling with things that are happening in the church, your first instinct should probably be to go to your pastor's and talk to them about those things. Beloved, we do not always get everything right, but we are seeking to watch over your souls for eternal good, and we always have in the forefront of our mind that we will give an account to our king for how we do so. Now, this fact should also instruct us as to what is going on if other people inside or outside of our church are running down your pastors or constantly contradicting your pastors. Beloved, you should not be ignorant of such subtle moves that cause you to lose confidence in those who have been charged to watch over your soul, not of themselves, but by your king. Beloved, you should not be ignorant of such subtle moves that tear not only at your confidence in those who are charged to watch over your soul, but tear at the unity of the church. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, gets very explicit about such things in Romans 16 when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
Brothers and sisters, we are to strive after unity in the church until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to mature manhood as Ephesians 4 instructs us. And it is part of our church covenant to labor for that unity. And part of that unity that we talk about when people join the church is to uphold the doctrine that we teach in the church. And we are very clear when we talk about this that that does not mean that you have to agree with every jot and tittle. Hardly anybody does. And we are fine with that. We want to shepherd your souls in that. But it does, it does mean that we cannot strive against the doctrine of this church. We cannot evangelize against the doctrine of this church or our pastors when they teach us accordingly. Beloved, we have covenanted together to do this. We all did it of our own free volition, and though it may seem small and insignificant to us, though it may not seem like a big deal to us as one who loves your soul, let me instruct you to not be fooled into thinking that it's not a big deal to God. You covenanted together with his people to strive for unity and to uphold the doctrine of this church. It is a big deal to him for you to strive against it. Those who seek to strive against and cause divisions contrary to the doctrine of this church are not serving Christ, but they are deceiving the hearts of the naive as they act contrary to the order that Christ has established in this church. Let's go back to our passage now after making that application and look again at verse 3. You can see at the end of verse 3 that Eve adds to the command that God gave to Adam. She adds that they cannot touch the tree either and we can also see at the end of verse 3 that after Eve says this she also knows the consequences that would come from eating of the tree. She knows that death will result. Now, most people make an issue out of Eve adding don't touch to the command, and perhaps there is something there that helps us see the subtle move towards sin, but we also need to remember that at this point in the narrative, there is no sin in Eve. So while this is brought up by most people who comment on this passage, it seems to me that Eve is probably expressing that she naturally understands the wisdom of Proverbs 6.27, which says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? To me, it seems like Eve naturally understands in her state of innocence that not only can she not eat from this tree, but she should not be walking around the garden carrying desires for this tree close to her chest. She shouldn't be going up to this tree daily and admiring its fruit and seeing how desirable that it is. Beloved, this should also be instructive to us in our lives. When God commands us to do things, we must obey. But we must recognize that some of God's commands seem to us to be on a spectrum. Some of God's commands seem to us to be, have a kind of subjective aspect to them, like dressing modestly or making crude jokes. Different people perhaps draw different lines in different places. When seeing God's commands command such things to us, we should not be seeking to see how close we can get to the line without crossing it. 
Beloved, we cannot carry fire next to our chest and expect that we will not get burnt. This fact should inform us not just about the clothes we wear or the jokes we tell or how we talk to each other, but in our day, beloved, it must inform the television we watch, the movies we watch, the media that we consume. If bad company corrupts good character, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, we should not be surprised if we are constantly keeping company with bad music, with bad television, with bad movies, with bad social media, we should not be surprised when we get burnt if we are constantly enjoying that fire next to our chest. Beloved, nothing you consume is neutral. Your king will not allow it. He has created an order such that all things are for him or they are against him, and no thing is neutral. All things are either helping you grow closer to Christ or they are seeking to subtly draw you away from him. And you should acknowledge that with eyes wide open. Do not fall prey to the subtle moves of the serpent when he lisps in your ear. It's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. Don't be legalistic. No, beloved, we are commanded to make no provision for the flesh. When it comes to sin and God's commands that seem to have a subjective spectrum aspect to them, we must seek to not get close to them, but we must seek to stay far away from them. Now let's look at verses 4 and 5 and see the serpent's next crafty move. But the serpent said to the woman... You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We can see here, beloved, that Satan's craftiness is found in half-truths. Satan begins in verse 4 directly contradicting God with a partial truth. What do I mean? What I mean is that while Adam and Eve couldn't have known this at the time when the serpent was talking to them, we will see next week that it is true. When Adam and Eve eat from the fruit, they are not immediately going to drop dead. And perhaps as Adam is sitting here with his wife and he sees her grab the fruit of the tree and eat of it, she doesn't drop dead. Perhaps when he sees this, it's the reason why he ends up eating it also. Perhaps he sees Eve eating it and thought to himself, I guess the serpent is right. When God said, you will die, he must have meant something else. It must have been some kind of nuance to it that I didn't understand, so I guess it's okay. But beloved, this is only because of God's mercy. It is not because what God has said is not going to happen because, of a matter, as a matter of fact, we know that Adam and Eve do die. And beloved, we should also learn from this lesson. When we see God being merciful to other people in their circumstances, as in the case of our passage this morning, Eve not immediately dropping dead, when we see God 
exercising such kindnesses in the lives of other people, we cannot look at that mercy and abuse the grace of God by assuming that he has to show that same mercy to everybody in that same situation. Otherwise, he's not fair. Beloved, this is simply not true. Mercy and grace are not so if they can be commanded. It is up to God's sovereign prerogative when he grants patience and mercy in different situations. It is not an excuse for us to barrel headlong in the same things thinking that God owes it to us as well. For example, my wife and I just celebrated 21 years of marriage and we thank God for his kindnesses to us, his mercy in our marriage, his grace in our marriage. We praise him for our children and the way that he has used the difficulties that we experienced early on in our marriage to help others. But the fact that he was kind to us doesn't make it any less true that it was not wise for us to get married when we did. It's not that we were too young. It was that I was too spiritually immature. Amy was ready, but I was not prepared to be a godly husband. I was still seeking to hold fire close to my chest. And it burned us. And it caused great difficulties in the first four years of our marriage. Now, are we thankful that in God's providence we did go ahead and get married and that he has shown us mercy and grace in our marriage and he has matured us and grown us through it and he has given us children through it and that he has shown himself mighty in our weaknesses? Of course we are. We praise God for that, but his kindness in our lives should be no excuse for others to have looked at our marriage and presumed that his kindness and his grace must extend to them if they do the same foolish thing. Young people, this is an especially important lesson for you to learn. Because as a young person, it's easy for you to see others do foolish and sinful things and then see what seems to you for no consequences to result from it. It's easy as a young person to see that and think to yourself, well, that must mean I can do it too. It looks fun. It's bringing pleasure. Nothing's happening to them, so nothing's going to happen to me either. It's all right. Young people, I'm telling you that this is an abuse of God's kindness. I'm trying to share this wisdom with you at a young age because all of us adults in the room remember thinking that way, but you learn as you get older that God is not always merciful in in granting His providential protections. As you get older, you see some people ruin their lives. And sometimes God is not patient with some people's sins. Sometimes he snatches their life away from them before they were ready. Think, for example, of all the young people nowadays who are experimenting and trying drugs. For some of them, God is patient and he is kind with them. He actually protects them in the middle of their sin. Later on, he brings them to repentance in the future and actually uses what they did in evil for good in the lives of others. 
That does happen. However, for some people, God decides to let them suffer the consequences of their actions. And we don't know who's who. Some people get addicted, ruin their lives. Some people, God has no patience with them, and the first time they try it, he immediately gives them justice and snatches their life away from them. How many cases of this do we hear in our day on the news when someone tries pot or some other drug and it's laced with fentanyl? And their life is snatched away from them at a day and in an hour they did not expect. So-and-so just did the same thing and nothing happened to him. It's going to be fine for me. And then, bam, God gives them justice. Oh, young people, do not fall prey to Satan's lies. Do not hold the fire of sin close to your chest and think God owes you mercy and grace. Instead, be like Joseph. When he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, he fled from sin. Young people, understand well the words of John Owen when he said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Now as we go back to our passage at verses 4 and 5, we can see that what Satan fails to tell Eve is that upon eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are going to die in two different ways. The first, immediate. The second, is going to take a while. They will immediately die in a covenantal sense. They will immediately die because they have broken God's law. It is no longer able to bring them life. They immediately suffer the death of their innocence. They immediately, upon eating the fruit, suffer the death of their spiritual life with God. And the second way that they will die is they will die physically, though not immediately. In the future, Adam and Eve are going to suffer the consequences of death in their bodies. They are going to return to death. Now, Pastor Scott has a wonderful illustration about this that he shared with me, and I think it's helpful. If Adam and Eve listen to Satan, as soon as they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will be dead in the same way that a tree branch and its leaves are dead the instant you cut it off from a tree. When you cut a fresh branch off of a tree, its leaves do not immediately turn brown and wither and fall off. The branch does not immediately become brittle and return to dust. However, as soon as you cut that fresh branch off from the tree, the principle of death begins to be at work in it, such that it is only a matter of time before the leaves are going to wither and it is going to return to dust. And this is what Satan fails to tell Eve in verse 4. And his half-truths are going to see it, that her and her husband are going to return to dust. Satan follows his contradiction of God with more half-truths. Look at verse 5. Satan is right. God does know that when they eat it, they, like God, will know good and evil. But Adam and Eve are going to know evil in a way that God has never known it. This is what Satan does not tell them. They are going to know evil by experience. 
They are going to know evil by breaking God's law and by becoming evil themselves. We can see that Satan is tempting Eve by basically telling her that God is withholding something from her that is good. He is saying that she can be like God, but God doesn't want want that. God is withholding from you. He's not sharing something good that he could give to you. Satan is bringing God's character into question. Satan is seeking to persuade Eve. Your eyes will be opened. Next week, as we look at verse 6, we will see that it makes it clear that she was indeed persuaded. And again, this half-truth of her eyes being opened, we will see next week in verse 7 that indeed the eyes of both Adam and Eve were open. Satan was right about that, but he has deceived Eve into making that sound like it was going to be a good thing. As we will see in the coming weeks, the exact opposite was true. Beloved, Satan comes to Eve in the same way he comes at you regarding those sins that naturally entice you. Satan comes denying the judgment of God, saying, you will not surely die. All the while, he knows that judgment is the end result of rebellion. And we know that Satan knew this to be the case. He knew it by experience. Satan knew this to be the case because before coming to Eve in the garden, he had already been kicked out of the heavenly courts. He who was an angel had already been judged because of his sin and thrown down to the earth and debased to be a snake that crawled on its belly. Beloved, as we look at our passage, we must learn the schemes of Satan, and not be ignorant of his devices. Eve began this interaction by quoting God's word to the serpent. And in doing so, she was doing good. She was exercising dominion. When she said what God said, she was ruling over the serpent. However, we should be instructed by what we will see next week in verse 6. We should be instructed that exercising dominion is not a one-time ordeal. It must be an ongoing act in our lives. As we close this morning, prepare to reflect on our passage today and the interaction between the serpent and Eve. Beloved, reflect on the fact that having dominion over sin in your life is not a one-time act. It's not quoting God's command to the whisper of the Satan one time. Rather, it must be a constant and a consistent striving after sin in your life. It must be a constant battle. And that is the burden of the Christian life. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ has overcome and he is at work in us so that that burden and that yoke that we have in striving after sin and putting it to death in our lives is a light yoke. It is easy because he has given us a heart that loves his word and his ways. Be instructed by Romans 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members 
to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Brothers and sisters, learn from our passage this morning as you seek to put sin to death in your life. Learn that Satan is playing chess, not checkers. Satan is satisfied to move some pieces on the board. He's satisfied to lose a pawn or a bishop. He's satisfied to lose a battle and move around a couple of pieces on the board to manipulate you to move your pieces in another way. Satan does not stop. When he loses a battle or a piece on the board, you can be sure that he is regrouping, that he is coming at you again in order to win the war. We can see it in our passage this morning. After Eve quotes God's command to Satan, what does he do? He regroups and attacks in a different way. He comes with a full frontal assault. You will not surely die. Beloved, as you reflect on this, we must heed the words of our Savior in Matthew 10 when he is sending his disciples out and he tells them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And then his next words are curious for us. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beloved, we must put this together with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 where he teaches us that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Beloved, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but as a follower of Christ, you are commanded to not be naive. You are commanded to look around to understand what God has said in his word about the world, about yourself, about the subtleties and the corruptions of your own flesh, about others, and you have been commanded to not be naive, but to think about yourself and these other things soberly and to operate in the world according to what God has said about it. Beloved, we are commanded to understand the ways and the schemes of Satan and wisely make decisions accordingly. But though we are to understand Satan's designs, we are to be wise as serpents. We are to be innocent as doves as we do this. We are not to be deceivers that hold fire close to our chest because I'm just trying to be wise as a serpent. No, beloved, we are to be wise as serpents, but innocent in regards to evil, innocent as doves. We are to act in accordance with Christ, doing good, to those who do evil to us. It doesn't mean we put on rose-colored glasses as we look at them and don't acknowledge what they are doing, but when they do evil to us, we are wise as serpents. We know what's happening, but we return good for evil. We love our enemies. We do not return evil for evil. We are to be innocent as does, but this does not mean that you stick your head in the sand. Now, for unbelieving friends among us this morning, I want to take a moment and plead with you to not presume upon God's kindnesses in your life to this point. 
of your life. The reason why you continue to breathe is not because you're a good person. It's not because you deserve it. It is God's mercy and grace in your life. The Apostle Peter speaks to this in 2 Peter 3 when he talks about how unbelievers will mock Christians as we wait for the return of Christ, just like unbelievers mocked Noah in the days before the flood. But be instructed by Peter's words to Christians when he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And he goes on, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a reward, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Friend, let me assure you, that there is coming a day, perhaps later on today, that God is going to snatch your life away from you. And it is only His grace that it has not happened yet. But be assured that it has been appointed to you once to die. Though you do not know the day or the hour, it has been appointed to you once to die, and after that, there is not a second chance. After that, it is the judgment. Jesus speaks to this mindset in his parable about the rich man who was making plans for his future when he says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, So you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Unbelieving friend, I plead with you to not find yourself unexpectedly in eternity. Do not lay your head on the pillow tonight going to sleep presuming upon God's kindness and grace in your life, presuming that you are going to awake in this world tomorrow and instead awake in eternity, having to stand before God in the filthiness of your unrighteousness. It is a fearful thing to presume upon God's grace and fall into the hands of an angry God. Friend, I plead with you to hear the good news that God has offered pardon, he has offered forgiveness for sins, he has promised eternal life to anyone and to everyone who will repent of their sins and who will trust in Jesus Christ by faith. I plead with you, hear the good news and come to Christ 
today. Do not listen to the lisp of the serpent as he tells you that there's always tomorrow. You're young, sow your wild oats. You're old, you're in good health, you've got many years to come. Do not listen to the lisp of the serpent as he whispers in your ear about that sin that you find so pleasurable. And he tells you how you're going to have to give it up. And he tells you that you can enjoy it just for a little while more. Just one more time. And then, a few more times, and then you can go to Christ. Well, friend, today, the day of salvation, do not delay lest you find yourself in eternity at a day and an hour you did not expect. Friend, if that's you this morning and you feel the burden and the weight of your sins, if you have godly sorrow concerning your sins and you are fearful that your sins are going to drag you through the grave into the flames of hell, as we pray, tell God that you are sorry for those things. Acknowledge to Him that He is right. You have been wrong. And you are sorry. Beg and plead for his forgiveness and look to Jesus Christ, the righteous one, in faith. Trust that he lived a perfect life for you. Believe that he died for you. That he nailed your sins that you feel burdened about. That he nailed them to the cross. Do this today and God has promised that you will be saved. And if you have this burden and you are not sure what to do, then after the service, please come see myself or Pastor Quinn or talk to the Christian that you are here with, for I assure you that there is nothing that we would rather do than to help you receive the free gift of eternal life today. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we close and reflect on this interaction between the serpent and the woman. Father, we entrust this time to you. We ask for your spirit to grant his work among us that you would move powerfully, apply your word by your spirit to us. For those of us who are believers, that we would acknowledge the order that our King has put over us, that we would acknowledge the order that you have imposed upon the world and creation, and that we would seek to live accordingly. Help us as your people, as we are living in this world, that we would not presume upon your grace and hold the fire of sin close to our chest assuming that it's going to be fine. Oh, Father, do not lead us into such temptation, but deliver us from such evil. Father, for the unbelievers among us, for our children who have yet to come to faith in your Son, for our visitors and guests who may not be trusting in you, for those among us who perhaps are deceiving themselves, Oh God, we plead with you, 
Remove the scales from their eyes. Cause their eyes to be open to their sin. And lift their eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ. To see a perfect Savior bearing the guilt, the shame, the burden, and the wrath of God for anyone who repents and comes to Him. Father, do this work in their lives. Father, we trust that if you do not do it today or at this hour, we plead with you. Father, we plead with you not presuming upon your grace, but we plead with you that you would extend grace, that you would give them more time. That you would not cause them to wake up in eternity outside of your Son, our beloved Savior. Oh, Father, we plead his blood that you would be patient, that not one drop of our Savior's precious blood would be wasted, but that all of his elect, all of his sheep would be gathered in to him. Oh, Father, please hear the cries of your saints and be patient. Be long-suffering as you have been with us. And help us as your people to recognize that grace that you and that patience that you have had with us and cause that to to help us to look on unbelievers with sympathy and not contempt. With humility, being poor in spirit, not proud. Oh God, please be merciful. Use your word today in this way and use us as your people In this way, in our families, at our places of work, here in our community. Father, we ask in the years to come that among us you would raise up more missionaries to send out into the world, more church planters to do like we're seeking to do in Wilkes, that we would be able to do that more and more and more, and that that would not only happen in our generation, but that it would happen for generations to come until on that blessed day, the clouds roll back and our Savior gathers us up that for all eternity where he is, we may be also. Oh, Jesus, it is, it is an irony that we feel that we do desire your delay for the sake of the lost, but in the same breath we desire, knowing that you will do what is right, that none of your elect will be lost. So we cry in our hearts, come quickly. Lord Jesus, we await for you. We long for you. And until that day, rule over us as your people. For it is in your name, that we trust, it is in your name, that we pray, it is your name, in your name, that we make our petitions known to our Father. Amen.